everybody. We are back at the TCP, and I am John Stamp. And uh, to start tonight, a uh, quick announcement. Um, I'm announcing my retirement, official retirement, as a flag football coach, ages five to seven-year-olds, uh, Glenn County Recreation. Uh, it's I have, I've decided it's time. Uh, though I did come on as a late addition a week before kickoff, I knew it'd be a challenge, uh, but I also once again, could not deny that call to serve. Uh, my boys are strong. They're hard chargers. Uh, that is to say, once we learned which way the end zone was, and uh, even though we got a late start getting organized, we had a powerful showing all season. The strategic partner gamers uh, had only two pass had the only the only two passing touchdowns in the league all season. So we had the greatest air attack of any Georgia-based five to seven-year-old flag football team in all of 2023. And when I make that claim, the stat I'm relying on is that we had the most passing attempts of any team all season. Uh, when I say that 2023 would be a season to remember, that's clearly an understatement. Uh, all that said, with all the success the gamers saw in 2023, I still have to recognize that when it's your time, it's your time. There needs to be room for new talent to emerge and uh, take on the leadership challenge that I believe, no, I know new coaches can shoulder. That's why, with a heavy heart, I'm hanging up my whistle. It was only one season, but it was one for the ages. I've already talked to the team. I waited for the final whistle last night after the last down was run, after the last high five uh, was had, to tell them the hard truth that this is the way it was going to be. They responded like champions, and in one voice they stated like men, cool, Coach Stamp, are there snacks? To that, I said, yes, you little grinders. There are snacks and juice boxes. So thank you, everyone, especially the team. Uh, just had to take that moment to put the rumors to bed. I'm officially stepping away from the game, and I appreciate all your support throughout the, the long career I've had. <clears throat> so just had to get that off my chest. Uh, but for real, though, um, I did just get done coaching flag football for Red Fives, six-year-old team. And uh, I've coached soccer. I've coached t-ball. Football, though, is different, and it took me nine games to figure out the difference, and that difference is stimulus. In soccer, and even in t-ball, there's always something going on. There's a ball to be chased or somebody coming up the bat. Uh, you don't realize it, but in football, there's a void of stimulus after every play. And with that said, do you have any idea how hard it is to wrangle nine five- and six-year-old boys after they've all scattered across the football field and get them back to the line and ready to play before the next snap. That shit was exhausting, bottom line. Fun, but exhausting. Uh, the question uh, comes up, um, but uh, I don't I don't know if I'll make first ballot for the Georgia Juvenile Flag Football Hall of Fame or not. That's that's not for me to decide, and I wouldn't want to influence those uh those uh, stakeholders, those decision makers in any way. Um, will I be surprised if I'm first ballot Hall of Fame? No, not, not a chance. Uh, but again, uh, we're going to let history decide. That's not for me to say. And with that being said, uh, seriously, that was fun, but enough football. Uh, we're going to get to it. On uh, the me side, I don't have much to report. Um, I can say that since Halloween, the second best holiday of the year is coming. I'm doing a giveaway. Shattered Circle, the first of the Jackson Cole novels, my horror police thriller, will be on Kindle for free October 26th to 28th. So make sure you mark that in your calendar. Um, Ty Benhoff 2 is, uh, I think, 
uh, like Superman uh, had a bad shot and like sent it to the Phantom Zone. I have no idea. It's out there someplace. Um, if it ever emerges from the Phantom Zone, I will definitely be the first one to let you guys know. Until then, um, let, tonight, let's get to it. Or I'm going to talk to a very special guest. Tonight, I'm talking to Brian Andrews of the Andrews and Wilson writing team. Brian Andrews is a U.S. Navy veteran, a park leadership fellow, and a former submarine officer with a psychology degree from Vanderbilt and a master's in business from Cornell University, my neck of the woods. Brian's also principal contributor at Career Authors, a site dedicated to advancing the careers of aspiring uh, writers and uh, published writers. Um, tonight, uh, we're going to talk about their upcoming book, Sons of Valor 3, A War Machine, uh, in War Machine, uh, Chunk and Whitney forced into a deadly match of wits with a terrorist mastermind and a terrifying weapon unlike anything they've ever encountered. After a shootout in Dubai left Hamza al-Saud dead and elevated brilliant aeronautical engineer Kasim Nadar to hero status in England, everybody assumes the terrorist threat from Al-Qadar has been eliminated. Everybody except JSOC counterterrorism analyst Whitney Watts. When she decides to help MI6 penetrate Nadar's network, Watts gets in a little too close over, too close to the truth and finds herself in a situation not even her teammates from Tier 1 can save her from. As Lieutenant Commander Keith Chunk Redman and the rest of Tier 1 fan out across London and search for Watts, Nadar appears to unleash his most dangerous weapon yet, an advanced drone with artificial intelligence and stealth technology, a very bad combination, to stop the horrifying attack on London, Chuck and his SEAL brethren must seek help from an unexpected ally and find a way to stop a war machine that was designed to be unstoppable. So, Brian, thank you so much for reaching out and joining me. Great to be here, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Um, so looking at, uh, you know, we always always starting with the background. And um, uh, growing up, um, I think Hump for Red October was probably the second book I read uh, growing yeah. up. And uh, the whole time, I'm like, man, that would be so cool. Like, you know, Alec Baldwin, awesome. Sean Connery, just the man. Um, the whole time, I'm like, yeah. And the dude that was on the radar, the the radar man, who's like, you know, the, the dude with the ears. The whole time, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a really cool gig. Like, I would do that someday. That's probably eighth grade. And, yeah. like, um, I think, uh, like, on a field trip or something, junior year, we actually toured a sub. And I was like, yeah, that that is uh, that dreams to bed. Like I was like, I, I I don't know. I've never thought it was claustrophobic. Like I'm the guy yeah. who fall asleep in a uh, MRI machine. But um, man, I stepped in that thing. I'm like, hold on, this goes hundreds of feet underwater and just hangs out. I'm like, nope. Yeah, <laughs> so, I love it. Nope, that's the reaction yeah. a lot of people have. Yeah. So with the when I was uh, doing research. Uh, my question is, you know, you got a psychology degree from from uh, Vanderbilt. Was there is do they get far enough through that training program where that's not a question or is there a time every new sub sailor has to close that hatch and you just don't know if they're going to handle it? Like, is that a thing? Like, is there some people that get underwater and it just gets in their head and they just kind of like this is not for me, but they don't figure it out until they're 500 feet below the surface? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are some some pretty big funny stories about that. In in my entire time, there was only one dude who um, who had that reaction. We we submerged, and he he sort of freaked out, and he ran towards uh, the bridge lower trunk hatch, and he started to try to climb up the ladder to open it. 
you know, we had two hatches on the bridge, so it's double protection. So, I mean, the chances of him, you know, if the first hatch was leaking by or a valve had had opened and the bridge trunk was actually full of water, that would have been a problem. But I mean, the chances are that he wouldn't have done anything um, at all. But the fact that he thought he had to get out and he could get out that way, you know, yeah. uh, was a little a little funny and a little sad. You know, I don't think he really maybe the recruiters didn't really explain what he was getting himself into. And, um, you know, he he um, he was sort of he was not a happy camper, uh, but he went on mission. Because <laughs> oh, yeah. once you're down and once you go, you're, you're gone. You know, you're yeah. at sea and we're not coming back unless somebody gets really hurt or or there's some accident or something. So, yeah. So it's uh, basically like, uh, I hear your concerns and I'm going to give you this straw so you can suck it up. Right. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, um, I had some, some contact with uh, that program. Mostly uh, I was in Syracuse. So I had, uh, I had some work in Saratoga Springs over, over time. I had uh, some work over in, uh, in Charleston, uh, for a time in, uh, the, um, the students in those programs just, you know, when you, well, clearly, you know, cause you worked with them, but you know, you sit down with somebody and they're next level. Like you just know that if they decide to start talking, you, you're not going to be able to take notes fast enough. If they really get into it, that, um, that was one of the few places or the few groups of people where I was like, this is across the board. Like these people are, I don't know the recruiting process, uh, to, to hire, uh, the sub cadre, but man, that's just, I don't know what they do to get them, but man, they're just next level and looking at their training, clearly they have to be, but wh- what is it? That, how do they weed out? Like you, you take, these kids are young and they're just so intelligent. It was, it was hard to, it was hard to uh, fathom sometimes. Yeah, there's definitely a vetting process. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, um, you know, if you're going, if you're on the officer track, they're going to look at your grades and your test scores and what, preparatory classes that you've taken in your undergraduate degree, you know, 90% of the applicants are engineers. I was sort of an outlier psychology guy. Um, And so then, but every applicant then has to go to naval reactors. All the officers do at least have to go to naval reactors. And you have to go through a couple of days of, you know, written and oral examination by the engineers who work at naval reactors, who are the actual people who did the calculations and designed the system. So, you know, when you're doing a an interview with somebody on, you know, a fuel plate construction in the reactor core, the guy who's asking you the questions is the actual dude who did the calculations He's for the, guy. the poison loading and the fuel loading and the geometry and all that stuff. So you cannot BS these people. I mean, they are geniuses and they're the ones who did the work originally. Um, and so, yeah, there's there's a, a massive calling process at each step of the way. And then, you know, after you pass that exam, you have to go to nu- Naval Nuclear Power School, which means you got to graduate through that course load. So there's calling there. And then you have to go to prototype, which is an operational uh, command. It's a reactor. It's basically the back half of a submarine on land, so to speak, uh, with the entire engine room and the reactor control room and um you know, uh, uh, all the switch gear and, and, and control cabinets, everything. It's just like, imagine just cutting off a back of submarine and setting up on, on the land and you have to operate and go through that training. So there's all these places where you can wash out 
And then once you go to the fleet, you have to go through qualifications on your individual boat. And some people wash out there. So there's all these places that, you know, eliminate people who are either not motivated or just don't have the mental horsepower to, you know, execute in that position. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it, it, it occurred to me um, in the opening pages of, uh, of uh, Sons of LR3, um, where you lay out um, what a submarine's capable of. You know, you lay mm-hmm. out that, you know, when it's, uh, uh, who is it? And his sister, um, his, the sister's a, an officer. And um, yeah, Spence. That's, that's some, yeah, Spence, that's a great, some great dialogue there. It's nothing better than having your buddy talk about how hot your sister is. <laughs> 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 but, um, but yeah, it's, it's something I, I've noticed um, over the years, the, uh, just the, and I don't know if, if, everyone appreciates it but the level of maturity that we get in these um young men and women who will sign up at in whatever um whatever service will sign up at 17 at a delayed enlistment or get out of high school and just jump right in uh the level of maturity that you see in them uh when they're in an expeditionary environment or when they're they're going about their operations is something that i know and i've said it before i know at, at my age when i was in their comparative age at 18, 19 years old, I was a bubble eating moron, right? Yeah. Seriously. Um, and, it, but it, as I was reading that, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's hard to, um, kind of render, but, um, these are young people in charge of a massive weapon, right? Um, the maturity level there is like, it, it's hard to fathom sometimes having an 18, 19 year old kid, maybe 20, 22, but they are in control of a country killing uh weapon you know so to speak and yeah. and it's just uh well you know just i i appreciate that i have people that can that can do that in that stressful environment but it's it always gets to me just the level of maturity that i don't know if the greater society appreciates out of very young people that are in very responsible positions in that yeah i mean there were many times when you know when i was engineering off the watch i'd be the the senior you know person in maneuvering you know, and I'm I'm 24 years old and I'm there operating a nuclear reactor and I've got, like you said, a 19-year-old, a 20-year-old, and maybe a 21-year-old in front of me as the throttleman, reactor operator, and electrical operator. And, uh, you know, so it's just four kids running this nuclear reactor, you know, in the middle of a, of a submerged warship. And then, you know, the same thought would occur to me when I made officer deck and I'm standing watching now. You know, what a lot of people don't understand in the movies, they always put the captain, the captain's the one who's driving the submarine around. But for that's that's like 1% of the time, you know, in real life, the officer deck is acting in the captain's stead. The captain is serving as captain, but he's not up there giving orders to the helm. You know, he's not on the periscope. You know, he, he'll be on the con when you go to periscope depth. And if there's a tactical situation, then he will take the con. But for 99% of the time, it's the it's the off the qualified officer corps who are qualified officer deck that are driving the submarine, you know, conducting those operations. And when I qualified officer deck and I pinned on my dolphins and I started standing watch by myself, believe me, it was not lost to me that, you know, again, now I'm uh, the ripe old age of 26, you know, and it's like, here I am, you know, in control, in control of this $3 billion warship with missiles and a reactor and a hundred souls on board. And they're all counting on me uh, not to mess up. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's something I always appreciate about uh, about our service members that I always want to you know just take the chance to just give my take on just how impressive those people are at that generation. You know, it's 
I always, it's a, it's something that's always stuck with me. Um, but um, so, in uh, as I was reading uh, uh, Sons of Valor, the the question uh, that that I highlighted and starred, and it's it's uh, I don't want to I don't want to take away too much from uh, exploring the book, but also it's a tough balance. You don't want to give anything away. But the question that that I wrote down in the margins was, uh, is it plot or chemistry that drives a great book? And I thought that'd be a great way to to kind of kick us off. Yeah, no, I love that question. Um, so I think one of the things that as a co-author that Jeff and I decided very early on that appealed to us is even though we were going to be writing military thrillers, we really liked the idea of um, you know, longitudinal storytelling, where we have characters that you get to know and live with for a long time. So, you know, we are authors who write series, that's what we do. Um, and so these relationships um, are sort of go hand in hand with the plot. I don't think we can write a book uh, one without the other, right? So what we do is we try to craft a plot that puts our characters in situations that test those relationships, right? And strain them. They're stress tested uh, with their loyalties and their morality um, in every single novel in different ways. And what's neat is, you know, as the series um, advances and you get more books under your belt with those characters, those relationships get stronger and, and deeper between those characters. They've, you know, had shared suffering. They've been through, you know, the suck and 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 made it out. But then every time something new happens, right, um, sometimes there's emotional baggage and you come back to things that just like in real life, maybe uh, it was a little more comfortable, a little easy, easier not to talk about something and just, you know, maybe sweep something under the rug. And we do that on purpose because, like I said, in real life, people do that. And then it's very interesting in fiction to come back to those things later. And when they rear their ugly head and suddenly now this, you know, trust is a question or, um, you know, how is the relationship going to be affected moving forward? Yeah. And, um, and the, 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 when that question came up for me was, um, it was really the way uh, Chunk and Saw, when they break out into, into England, I'm not going to give any, any big stuff away, but um, just, uh, you know, you put those guys who have been together so long and worked so hard and been through the ups and the downs and you give them time to get fidgety on a surveillance, yeah. you know, and start yeah. getting on each other's nerves. And then um, just the, 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 you know, you say brotherhood, but it, it came down to my mind. It was the chemistry of those characters. You know, the plots are amazing. The, between the, 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 uh, the monster you got hiding in the background with Valkyrie and, um, and just the, the, you know, Whitney's out on, on her thing going, going through the ringer. And when I read that, that part, you know, that just sitting there getting on each other's nerves because they're stuck in a car, just waiting to go. They're just waiting for the green light and it and you feel it, you get amped up and you get ramped. And then, um, also, you know, like you said, um, Saw's got stuff going on. I think it was yeah. Edwards. Yeah. Saw's got stuff going on. And, um, you know, most of the time in, in, uh, in our line of work, we're just like, okay, we're going to have a great time. We're going to find a great bad guy. We're going to have some pretty kick-ass action scenes. And, um, and yeah, we go, you know, the shooters go get them. Uh, they have some close calls, but you know, you take the time out of that to be like, well, okay, here's this guy 
um, well-trained professional and running a hundred percent ahead. Uh, but back home, he's got, he's got decisions to make. It doesn't matter how great this, this job is or this adventure that you get to go on for a career. Um, it's, this is the point in that career where you have to make a decision on what's your priority. And, um, I know that I I ruined my wife's career three times moving her around. <laughs> so I've, you know, not not to their the severity that these guys live by, but um it just uh, it's just when you're reading it, you're just like, man, that is that is one of those things we don't get to see in the fiction world is uh yeah, here's this uh this uh this sniper who is just amazing at his job, loves his work, but uh mom has questions, right? And uh, yeah, that's that that can create career changes. And uh, I just I love the humanity. I think that's where that question came from. I love the humanity that you guys built into those to those characters. Yeah, thanks. And and when we were thinking about that scene, we were thinking about Chunk. And, you know, our first reaction was that, you know, he's going to be like, hey, you know, like, uh, do whatever you need to do, brother, like, I'll support you. That's sort of the fairy tale leadership response. And that's what's in Chunk's heart. But then what we realize is, you know, in real life, he has to look at it and say, you know what, you know, what's what's best for the team is really if Saw stays. Um, and that's what's best for me, too. So, you know, that is part of the, the, the burden of leadership is that, you know, you work for the United States Navy, you work for the Joint Special Operations Command. There are not just guys like saw that grow on trees that you can just pick off and replace this guy. Even if you replace him with a a capable sniper, there's going to be a learning curve. And and while that new person is getting up to speed, you know, your unit is going to be below its capability when they had the old guy. So, you know, you know, he has to wrestle with the fact, and we have this scene where he's talking with his CSO, where he's basically like, you know, I expect you to do what's right for the Navy. And that puts him in a difficult situation. And and it'll be fun. You know, I'm not, like you said, I don't want to give any spoilers for how um, Chunk decides to resolve that. But he is caught between a rock and a hard place um, when when Saw starts thinking about retirement. Yeah, it it goes against... uh... You know, the there's the leaders eat last, uh, you know, servant leadership thing. Always, you know, happy people, happy, happy unit. Um, but yeah, the the one the guy makes the point. I've I've spent two million dollars training this dude. This is not an yeah. asset I can yeah. let go. You know, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I love uh, I love that drama, that that twist. That um, again, you know, reading sometimes in the fast paced world, that's it, given taking those moments to be like, oh man, that just drives home such a humanity to these characters that that's why I was, you know, it, is it the, the, you know, fast paces, car chases, shootouts, or is it that humanity in those little bits, those little bits before those shootouts start that really drive the fan base and drive the books. And it's, I don't I didn't expect a clear answer for me at all. I yeah. just thought it was a great one to, to, to start with, you know, it's a great question. And I think, you know, for the sake of, being honest it's for us it's both yeah 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 gotta find that balance um so the um when i was looking uh, looking at your series and there's i mean between the the series the the you got tier one sons of valor shepherds uh taking on jack ryan and mm-hmm. uh, writing for web griffin it's um i do you guys there's that that delicate balance 
um, between uh, being artists and being businessmen. And I, I, um, I'm not sure if I could write a book with with another person. I, I think it'd be cool. But as far as divvying that up, how did the, how did you guys divvy up work or agree on the partner the parameters of the partnership when you got started? Is it business driven, art driven, or a good mix of both? Like it's got to be a good mix of both to put out a good product, but. Uh, with your business background, I just wondered if if uh, you guys attack it as a business enterprise or or what your what your paradigm is. Yeah, I think we put the business first, um, and it's not necessarily incongruous to say um, that good business makes good art. And let me let me explain why. If you say your business is storytelling, and we're in the business of delivering a product to our readers who are our customers, that's the best military thriller possible. That means that what we want to do is not worry about the things like, I wrote this sentence, or Jeff wrote that one, or pride of ownership over this idea, or I thought of this plot point. It's not a competition between the two of us. And the art of the book is this is really been redefined in our model. And what I mean by that is we look at the finished product as the result of our combined effort. So as a parent, you can probably relate to this. Like if somebody asked you, you know, well, which kid, which kids are yours and which ones are your wives? You'd laugh. You'd be like, our kids are both of ours. Like we both contributed to parenting these children. And I cannot tell you on a given day, like what I said and what my wife said and what advice she gave on and what advice I gave them. And it's a team effort and it's it takes time. And so these books might sound a little corny, but they're like our kids, you know, like we both yep. poured a lot of heart and soul and energy into them. And we really can't by the end of the day, always remember who did what, because we're talking on the phone three or four times a day, trying to figure out what to do with the plot. And so like today, for example, we're working on tier one, book eight, and I'm going to be writing a chapter that's a, a hit on a mountain compound. And so I called Jeff to let's talk about, you know, how this scene's going to unfold. And I honestly do not remember who came up with what idea during that conversation, but I have a bunch of notes and together we came up with like, well, here's what we want to accomplish in this scene. And um, that's going to go into the book. And then I'm going to write the rough draft and he's going to edit it. And he's going to change some sentences and then I'm going to do the same on his on his chapters. And then in DE, our editor is going to come in and he's going to suggest changes. And then I'm going to make some and he's going to just do a pass. And then our copywriter is going to come in and she's going to suggest changes. And so by the end of the day, like there have been four or five people whose, you know, hands have been on this book, tweaking the sentences and the plot and and elements in the story. And so it truly is a team effort by the end. So it would be very arrogant and 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 quite erroneous for me to say that it's my book. And so that's the coolest part about co-authoring with Jeff is that we set that goal very early. On the first act of tier one, our very first book we wrote together, we said we're going to take our ego. Well, at the time we said we're going to try to take our ego out of the equation. And then, but we did. So, you know, by, by setting these ground rules, we really did take our ego out of the equation 
And we celebrated the completion of the book with, you know, cracking open bottle wine, toasting each other and being like, great job, brother. Like this book's freaking awesome. And uh, that's how we've maintained. That's how we roll now. Yeah. And did that come right out of the gate or did it, was there a, it honestly a warming came, up? No, it came right out of the gate because when, because Jeff was a little hesitant to start. Uh, he's like, I don't understand how co-authoring is going to work because I just write my own stuff and you write your own stuff and our styles are different and stuff. And I said, well, I don't know how it's going to work either. I think we just split up the chapters. And then he came back and he's like, I think we have to have this approach where it's like, you know, I can change anything you write. You can change anything I write. And it's just about the story. You know, it's about us writing the story together. And um, that was great that he came up with that approach and that we really leaned into that hard. So it's been from day one. Yeah, that's 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 amazing that you could just uh, hit it and just run in the way you did. That's that's very cool. And it's uh, it's it, but it, uh, it also probably goes back to this, um, you know, like you said, the um, all the sea trials and all the qualifications, the the feedback in the professional environment is, uh, you know, you screw something up, it's you screwed this up and you need to get better and you need to do it fast. Right. So, yeah, we were we were already primed in conditions from from our careers in the military. This was already our mindset. So it might not work with other people who are not uh, coming from that sort of professional environment. You cannot run a submarine by yourself. You cannot take a, a terrorist compound by yourself. The SEALs do it as a team. The submarine crew is a team. And we are used to relying on each other and then handing off the watch to somebody else. Handing off the watch is what we do when we're co-authoring, you know. Okay, I'm passing a baton to you to write this chapter and vice versa. So, you know, we were already programmed to do that. Yep. And uh and candy coated feedback does nothing but slow the whole process down. So it's yeah. when that way, if you can start with the honesty, it's, yeah. you know, you don't have to glaze anything. You just go, you know, like, I didn't like this. Oh, cool. What you got? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Taking the ego out of it's very, very difficult for, uh, for most people to do. Um, and that, that kind of, another question I had was, so uh, the, the five different series I've I've tried to write two books at once before, and uh, one of them, the story, I was trying to hand jam the story in, uh, it wasn't working, and the characters, I don't know if this sounds nuts, but they were just kind of like trying to elbow each other out of the way when it came to writing time. Mm -hmm. Do you guys write singular focus on one, or are you able to stage it um, and write multiples at the same time? We're always writing one rough draft, and then other books come and intrude for edits, so there's always one book in DE and one book in rough at the same time. Sometimes there's a book popping his head in there for copy edits too at the same time. It depends on the production schedules. But I'd say normally what we're at is a rough draft in DE on two different books at the same time. Um, but because the DE comes right after the rough, your head's still in that space. It's distracting sometimes to have to, one of us always has to pull off the new project to go back and fix, you know, the, the previous project. Um, but we tried writing two books in a series back to back. We wrote Dark Angel and Dark Rising in the Shepherd series back to back. And we thought, oh, this is going to be the best thing ever. Like, because we've never done that before. And it's funny, like, we didn't like it. You know, we, we'd rather actually jump from series to series because we do, like you're saying, the characters sort of elbowing each other. It's funny you say that because it's like 
the characters want their airtime and they want their stories to continue. So it's like, you know, by having to write two back to back, the other characters are waiting and they're like annoyed. So it's like our brains and maybe just our short attention spans where maybe we're like children, but we, we'd like to, we, we like to jump to the next project as soon as we finish a book. Yeah. And it's probably uh, kind of akin to cleansing the palate a little bit. If you can finish up a Sons of Valor, go back to Shepard, just empty out that guy and come back to to Clancy or whatever and, and be able to just I found that that when I skip from because I start my first one was like a horror police procedural move straight over to crime thriller follow that up with a with another fantasy a whole different genre cleanse it cleanse it out and then be ready to jump back in and it when I tried to do back-to-back crime thrillers it was like by the time I got done I was like I gotta do something else real quick and, yeah. yeah so you get it that's well, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't have this the uh, the twenty however many books you guys have, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, for me, just uh, figuring this out as I go is like, um, yeah. My next one, it was I got to Ted Benhoff three mapped out, but as uh, I'm looking at it, it's I've got you know this little whisper in my head being like, you should do something completely different. And there's a now I'm writing a sci. My next one's gonna be a sci-fi book. I'm like, okay, I'll I'll go knock out some sci-fi and come back to the crime side. Yeah. And, it's, uh, and it, as soon as I started writing, as soon as I got my outline done, and just uh, hit play on the movie in my head and st- and started rocking that uh, sci-fi thing, I was like, this feels so good. Like, yeah, I can just air it out and I can go right back to tie on on part four. You know, that's cool. Yeah, it's uh, and um, you know, uh, speaking to that, uh, when you guys get started, like you've got you know, the, the multiple li- lines of, uh, of effort when it comes time to start a new book, do you guys, uh, just like take off and get like a, go get a cabin in the woods or something and do a writer's room? Or do you guys just, uh, you know, just, just meet up for dinner some night and just start scribbling. Do you break down time to, to cultivate the, the, you know, by you said sons of Valor, tier one, eight. So when tier one, nine comes around are you guys like, all right, wives we're we'll be back in like a week we're gonna go we're gonna go to uh like miami and uh we won't be on south beach the whole time but we're gonna go have a writer's room right <laughs> that would be cool we always joke if we lived in the same city you know we'd never get anything done so that's why we're right. in different places um yeah no i mean when we start what we do is it's usually we finish it seems like the books always finish on the friday or the, sometimes we have to work through the weekend and then that monday morning uh when we're ready to start the next project it's like all right, let's blank slate. Let's talk about where we left off and where we want to go. And because we sort of write in trilogies um, in our series, like Sons of Valor 3, we knew exactly, um, well, I shouldn't say we knew exactly, but we had a really good idea where we left off with Kasim and what was going to happen and that we wanted it to be in London. And, And so then we had to map out just how to accomplish that. But when Sons of Valor 4 comes around and we have to start the next bad guy in the next trilogy, you know, that's going to be a heavier lift and that'll take longer. But usually we start on a Monday and it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of brainstorming and outlining. And then we then by the end of that first week, we got to rock and roll and we start putting putting words on the page. Nice. And uh, do you guys um, and it's it, it's one thing or the other every author I talk to. Um, people who outline every chapter or people who are just like, what if this happens? And they just start writing. Did you guys have to come together on that? Or were you guys on the same page as far as method goes when you started? 
I mean, I was a little more of an outliner than he was, but I was never like a super detailed outliner. He was always a pantser riding by the seat of his pants. And so for just the sake of organization, when we first started, um, we both agreed we would write in 3X structure. So that makes it easy. We agreed we would write third person, multi-POV. We were already doing that. So then like for tier one, we started and I said, okay, I'll sort of map out this chapter list. And it would say like, um, you know, chapter one, POV, John Dempsey, setting, um, um, key, key, you know, elements for the chapter. And there'd be like a little paragraph that'd be like, you know, this opens in the Adriatic, they're on a boat, blah, 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 blah. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. And that would, you know, we would, we would shuttle those assignment, like, you know, we would say this chapter's Jeff, this one's Brian, next one's Brian's. We'd have our chapter assignments and then we'd go off and do it. Um, but now that we've written so many books together, we still do that, but instead of a full page, it's just chapter 43, Jeff, you know, Dempsey POV set in Nepal, blah, 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 you know, yeah. and then, and then we go. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's all, all those things that, uh, man, it's, it's so organized, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm pretty jealous that, uh, that, that you can get up and be like, yep, we're going to work on this thing and just more creative as a day comes so like, oh, we wrap that What are we doing next? You know, it's, yeah. I can't wait to reach that period period where I can just get up and be like, where am I writing today? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> someday, someday it'll come. Um, so yeah, the, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, uh, writing for, uh, WEB and now, and now the Clancy books, um, just, uh, I've, I've had, uh, uh, Jerome Priestler and, uh, Mark Cameron on and, um, just it, it their take on, on working with the estate and the freedom that they give them, uh, what's your experience been with, with, uh, work just, Hey, how did, how did the Clancy, the Clancy say, be like, Hey fellas, I got an idea it was, yeah. that about, about how it happened. I mean, what happened for us is that, you know, Tom Colgan approached us to write uh rogue asset, which was in number seven in the presidential agent series number seven or number six, some, one, one of those. Um, and that was in the Webb Griffin estate. But he, you know, the estate basically turns over control of the series to Putnam. And so Tom is the editor who's in charge of the estate work. And he was Tom Clancy's editor at the end. So he knew Tom. He handpicked Mark Greeny to start writing the series. He's, he's handpicked all the authors, actually. So for us, in our case, we started on that Web Griffin book and we wrote it. And I think Tom's were, you know, Tom's feedback to us was he's like, wow, he's like, I didn't, I didn't really expect you guys to go global and geopolitical with this book. So like Rogue Asset was set in Sudan. We wrote it about a year. Well, we wrote it maybe a year and a half. I mean, we wrote maybe two years before and it came, it pub like a year before the um, the actual civil unrest happened in Sudan. And so um, we sort of were prescient. That's what the story was about. Sort of a coup to overthrow the government. The presidential agent comes in. And so when that sort of all like happened in real life, I think Tom was like, wow, this is cool. These guys really sort of have their 
thumb on the pulse of global politics. And Mark Cameron had told Tom that he's like, I only want to do, you know, one or two more books. So then Tom started thinking about who will I bring in to replace Mark? And they, the negotiations with the Griffin estate broke down for the next book in that series. So then he calls us and like, would you rather take, would you like guys like jump into the Clancy series? And we are like, whoa, like, <laughs> are you serious? And, uh, and he's like, yeah, would you like to take over for Mark Cameron when he finishes up? And so that was how it happened. Wow. That's, and uh, did you, uh, as far as continuity goes, um, how far back or, I mean, as Clancy, I mean, it's hard to put that a Clancy book, um, but um, did you have to go back and get continuity over time or did you meet up with Mark and be like, all right, this is, this is where we've been. This is because there's so many different aspects of a Clancy novel. Um, just picking it up and making sure you get all those details right. Cause the, the readers are going to hang you, you know, <laughs> if, yeah. if, you, if you miss a detail, how did you spin up, I guess, to get, to get up to speed? Well, we thought that that would be what we needed to do. And we did get with Mark and we did talk with Mark, but um, an interesting opportunity presented itself to us, which is that our book active defiance comes out on the 40th anniversary hunt for October. And so when Tom Colgan was asking us, what do you guys want to write about? And we started pitching ideas. He was like, oh, Mark already did that. And Mark Greeny already did that. And oh, well, Don just did that. And, you know, um, you know, so there's there's 20, ours is number 24. And there's been like 10 in this junior series. I mean, think about this. You've got these brilliant people who are writing in this Clancy universe. Like, how do you come up with a new idea? I mean, that hasn't already been done. I mean, we had a couple ideas and then, you know, uh, and then and then after that, we went back. We were like, all right, we got two more new ideas. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but that's what Mark Cameron's going to do for his next book. And then the one after he's doing something similar. We're like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You know, <laughs> so we were like, OK. And then when we realized that um, AOD is coming out on the 40th anniversary hunt for October. We just said, well, why don't we do a big submarine book? Why don't we do something that pays homage to Red October? And so, uh, and we did something else, which is we brought in uh, Katie Ryan. So the twins, Kyle and Katie, have never been featured. Well, I mean, they appeared in, you know, Patriot Games when they're little. But as adults, they have not entered the Ryan verse. And so we thought, oh, this could be really cool um, if we have an opportunity to bring the twins into the Ryan verse. And so what we did is... Um, we, we, we created a novel that has a lot of the same elements and feel and nostalgia of Hunt for Red October as if it was happening today in modern times. And then, you know, Jack Ryan is the present. He cannot be out there on submarine, you know, you know, airdropping on submarines and doing that sort of crazy stuff. He's in the Oval Office. And so now, you know, that element of in the field falls to Katie Ryan. So it's really exciting for us. And, you know, even if you hadn't read Mark's last book, you will be fine. You can pick this book up and read it. And then as we get into the next two books that we're going to write, that's when we're going to kind of, I think, have to go back and really look at the book that Mark is working on right now. We haven't read it because it's not done. But as soon as that's done, um, and because the production schedule is so fast, that's the other thing. Like we didn't even know what he was going to do. Even if we didn't write 
Act of Defiance the way we did. We still wouldn't have had his book in time. We had to start ours without knowing what's going on. So if you look at Act of Defiance as a little stopgap, it gives us a chance to read Mark's new book. And then geopolitically, we can decide, okay, well, Act of Defiance happened in there, but any important elements from Mark's last book will go into the next book we write. Yeah, as you as you're mentioning, uh, you know, Katie Ryan, the the uh, the big sister to Jack Jr., who's been around now a while, and I just remember, um, I, it's you know those the like the Patriot Games, the the uh, some of all fears, the clear and present danger era. Um, Jack's Jack's a baby, and every, the whole family's fussing over Jack Jr. And then to now, you know, Jack Jr. has been in the game you know 10 years now and and then katie's out there so I'm, all i could think in my head was uh katie stuck someplace and and jack just showing up with a big shitty and grin on his face being like huh, yeah who's in charge exactly now? <laughs> 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 hey big sister dan <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't know you, you can take that take that idea <laughs> okay you got it um yeah it's just, uh, man, I, I grew up devouring Clancy books. So it's it's just, uh, to, I can't imagine getting that call. I'm just being like, uh, yeah, I'm clearing my calendar. When do we start? <laughs> you know, it's exciting. It's a big honor. It's a big honor. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And it, and, and that you get to to write Jack Ryan, you know, the, yeah. the man, you still get the, you get the, I mean, yeah, he's in the strategic level. He's stuck in the Oval Office now, but you're still writing Jack Ryan said this, right? I know. You're writing canon. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's that's very, very cool. Um so uh um the um let's see. I uh, as I was going through your your um your website, I found a couple a couple pages that I wanted to touch on. And the first one was uh um the recipes. Like how, uh, how'd you guys come up with the recipes? I mean, that was kind of the result of just some smack talking with, um, you know, Ward Larson and Don Bentley and Josh Hood. You know, we love the great thing about the thriller community these days is that you have a lot of veterans who are writing in the space, you know? So Tom Clancy was never a veteran. He did not serve. And, and, and Robert Loveland was not a spy, you know, like the, yeah. the Vince Flynn was not a, an uh, CIA asset, you know, or operator. These guys were civilians who were interested in the covert world, who did amazing research and wrote really thrilling books. But it was all their imagination. Whereas now, after you know, post 9/11, post Iraq, uh, Afghanistan wars, we have a whole new generation of people who've been there, done that, that are are good storytellers and are telling the stories. And so we're just so grateful for that community. And, uh, you know, part of it is just bringing our, our Navy bullshit, you know, let's, let's rip on army sort of mentality, right. you know, to social media. And so we were, um, we were trying to do, um, we're just trying to find a fun way to engage with other uh, military veteran thriller writers, and also maybe raise a little bit of awareness and money for, folds of honor. So we we came up with this idea of doing a craft cocktail challenge. Um, the country music star, John Rich, he's a big supporter of, of folds of honor. He's been very generous and, and nice to us too. So he opened his bar, Redneck Riviera in Nashville. We created a craft cocktail called the Sons of Valor. They had it at the bar. And then we asked those other guys to 
you know, come up with their own recipes and we'd post them. And that, and that was that it was just having fun, you know, just yeah. having fun. Yeah. I got to tell you, it's, um, I have a, I have a strict, uh, no drinking on school nights policy, but, um, the, uh, I gotta tell you, it's a mix between either Friday nights, either going to start with a Texas forever or Tom Colgan's tears. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure which, but they're calling my name. Like, uh, two ounces of redneck Riviera, uh, over ice, a little bit of club soda and a little bit of lime juice. Just yeah. that's a great way to start a weekend. And then, yeah. um, Bentley's, um, Bentley's the, that Tabasco, the Tabasco sauce feels like it's going to hurt in a minute, but that'll probably follow up on Saturday night. I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that's, that's if fun. you make one, you got to post on social media with the picture. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There will be, there will be one of those on Instagram on, uh, on Friday night, maybe two. I don't know. Depends on what nice. I got going on Saturday. <laughs> the, uh, the other, the other piece on top of your publishing schedule that you mentioned, your guys's film and TV work is, I mean, that's uh, so in a work day, you know, cause that, that's the way I look at this is, uh, you know, my work day is, you know, every day I have a word count. I have a set set of hours that I work at this job. And um, so I wonder you guys, I'd imagine with your schedule, you have to divvy up your days. Do you divvy up film days and writing days, or do you have like, a, okay, 10 to 10 to 12, we're working on Sons of Valor, uh, you know, one to three, we're working on the next script. Uh, how do you, how do you guys organize your time? Yeah. So that's kind of what we're having to do now is, you know, in the morning um, we'll write, then, you know, midday, um, maybe we'll conduct some business. Some A lot of our Zooms happen midday. And then afternoon might be working on treatments or screenplays or short stories. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately, right now, there's just been a lot of weekend work. Because um, we're just so busy. And um, that looks like it's going to continue for quite some time. And um, that's taking a little bit of a toll, <laughs> you know, having to work, yeah. you know, nights and weekends and stuff. But I'm not, we're not, the thing is, you know, it's a feast or famine business and we know that. And, you know, we have to, we have to take advantage while, you know, while there's opportunity. So, you know, we do, our general policies, we just don't say no to anything. And so we're going to continue to work on all the series and all the treatments and screenplays that people will throw our way until the point that one of us dies. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good plan. I mean, that's, that's sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, uh, but yeah, so when I, I've looked around at, at I've studied the screenplay fascinates me because it's, you know, you write a hundred thousand words um that's you know good 360 pages uh for a movie it's 90 to 120 pages two hours everything you want to tell within uh outline form and yeah. it's uh i my brain has had a hard time kind of adjusting to telling the story by almost bullet points you know that this formatting is a different way that nobody's ever you don't study in school you don't study a narrative yeah, yeah. it's um was that something that came natural to you guys or just something you've grown into? For me, I've studied it over and over again, just thinking it'd be so much fun to try it. And then I, one day I'm mapping out my next book and I'm like, this outline is like 80% of a scene. You know, yeah. all I got to do is have the slug line. I got to have the whatever set the scene and and boom, dialogue. So I played, I played around with it a little bit that way. How were you able, was it an easy transition to go from laying down 
narrative to working in that, that very limited screenplay environment? I don't think it's easy. Uh, it's a different way of thinking. And we're just we're just getting started on on that stuff. What you know, what the typical process is for most people who aren't aware is you know, you sell your rights, you know, your 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 IP is optioned by a studio or a producer. And in general, they're going to want to bring their own writers in, you know, especially if it's a if they're going for a big budget, you know, high production value sale that they want to sell to Amazon or Netflix or Apple Plus or whatever, they're probably going to want to attach an A-list screenwriter or showrunner with a lot of experience under their belt. So in those cases, you know, we have like a dozen properties that are in development. Most of them are in development with other people who are going to attach or who have attached as the screenwriters. We have uh, two that we're looking at, uh, one that we're under contract as the screenwriter already, and then another one that we're, you know, we're very hopeful will be the screenwriters. And that's that feels about right for us right now. Like that's what we can handle. And I think if the one that we have the deal on to to be the screenwriters, if it if it goes really well, you know, then we'll want to do some more. Um, or, you know, what we were thinking is that, you know, once, um, you know, once a streaming series gets up and running, you know, we're executive producers, we'll get to know the writers and, um, you know, there'll probably be an episode or two in every season that we contribute heavily to. I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll need to lean on us for, yeah, for ideas. Yeah, that's, uh, I just, uh, when I, when I looked at that, I'm like, man, I'm like, that's, you know, adding on top of the writing schedule. It's like, but it, yeah, but if it, it, that sounds like a, like a team effort, you guys get to lay out ideas and have the, the professional yeah. script writer who can work in that format. Yeah. Just put it on paper. That's yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds cool for me. It's like uh, just, uh, you know, the first book I was like, I was like, well, it's, that sounds cool. Let me just see if I can write a book. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. That was fun. I'm going to do it again. And now, and then the screenwriting thing, I'm like, that's such a alien thing I'm looking at. I just wonder if I can do it. So that's, that's just, I've just been playing with it. Like, can I tell a story in that mode? It's yeah. Ooh, that's a tough one. That takes some time. That's a hard thing to wrap your brain around, but I just wanted to, I just wanted to mention that. I was like, man, that's a, I'm fascinated by it because I don't understand it. <laughs> I, yeah. think it's, I think it's pretty much where it goes. Um, but man, I've uh, I've kept you for uh, for almost an hour. Um, but um, I uh, I wanted to to um, you do a lot of work for the veteran community. I wanted to to see if there, are there any events coming up, or you got any projects, or anybody you want to um, give a shout out to as we uh, you know since I see that you got a few partnerships and some charities that you work with. Yeah, so I think one of the great things that we feel um, fortunate is that we've had this veteran entrepreneurship community that we consider ourselves a part of. So I talked a little bit about, you know, the veteran authors, you know, I encourage people to pick up copies of, you know, Don Bentley, Josh Hood, Ward Larson's work, um, you know, all the veteran authors out there, they're doing, they're doing fantastic work. On the entrepreneurship side and charity side, you know, we support Seal Legacy Foundation. Uh, Jeff has a personal connection with the Mark McGinnis, who's the founder of the nonprofit. We've been supporting them uh, from the very beginning. Uh, we developed a relationship with uh, Tom and Jen Satterley at the All Secure Foundation, which is really focuses on PTSD 
but not just for the service member, but also for the spouse and family members, because they've, that's sort of the point of all secure is that, you know, the, the spouse and family members are equally stressed. Uh, they go through their own version of PTS from what their spouse is going through. And that's been under recognized and underappreciated. So we support them. And then, you know, folks like uh, Tim Crookshank at Bonefrog Coffee, give Tim a, a shout out. He'd be a fun guy for you to have on podcast sometime. Um, you know, he's a former Navy SEAL um, and started a coffee roasting company up in Seattle, Washington. And, um, you know, was just bootstrapped the whole thing himself and, and uh, you know, just fantastic. So yeah, all these, all these people who are veterans that are in their second or third act now after service, uh, you know, we want to support them because they've done a great job of just help get help getting our name out there too. So yeah, no, <clears throat> Bonefrog Coffee is speaking my language, but uh, yeah, mentioning the uh, the spouses, uh, often underlooked, but uh, I I don't know if I've mentioned this before or not, but um, you know, on on the police side, uh, I had a buddy who uh, yeah we were we started out together. Uh, he when he retired uh, from the PD, uh, one of the coolest things I've ever seen is, uh, you know, he gets his shadow box, he gets his retirement cert certificate with his badge all all in the in the shadow box and blazing all that good stuff. Um, but they also did the same for his wife. So, mm, you so know, awesome. he served for 25 years. She also served. She's they I, I often think they got it worse than us because we're out there having fun. I mean, we, you know, often, I mean, it's not always fun. It's, it's sometimes very, very bad. But there's I don't think, you know, there's nothing more interesting. It's an interesting way to live your life. Right. Yeah. Um, but they're the ones sitting at home, you know, and, and if the news gets to them the wrong way or if rumors get to them the wrong way, they're the ones who have to worry about it. Well, we're off being, you know, kids who never want to grow up, basically. Yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, they they gave her the same display, the same recognition. It was it was a very, very cool thing that I hadn't seen prior to that. I right? think that's wonderful, man. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, but yeah, the spouses never get the credit. I've also I've often thought I'd, I'd really like to. Uh, to reach to to get uh, police wives of America or, or some organization like that on here just to lay out the you know just uh, how strong those people are the spouses yeah. that allow us to go you know go you know live the adventure you know sometimes so to speak time to time yeah. you know um, but uh, but no that's that's fantastic um, yeah I told you I wouldn't keep you much more than an hour but um, when I have veterans on I have the same question to wrap up as everybody sure. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, you know, in different places, you know, law enforcement's under scrutiny lately, military comes under scrutiny quite a bit as well. Um, but, you know, we're sitting here talking, you've got your, your experience as a veteran, um, 18 year old kid, um, just getting ready to graduate high school, no idea what he wants to do with his life, but he's standing in front of the recruiting station and you walk by, what's your, what's your advice to him? My advice is if you feel called to serve, I think you should. I feel like um, whether that service is military service or Red Cross or Peace Corps or Teach for America, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be on the pointy tip of the spear uh, for it to be service. Um, what you do is service. Fire department is service. All these different communities that keep our civilian population safe and educated and informed, right? There's lots of different ways you can contribute. And I just feel like, you know, to call yourself an American 
and really understand what it, the values and sacrifices that this country is founded upon sort of demands that you give back. And, and I feel like, you know, to that 18 year old, that's what I would say. Maybe you don't need to walk into that Marine Corps recruiter's office, but walk into somebody's office that's going to give you the opportunity for two to four years to go out there and try to make the world a better place and to try to support the country and your fellow citizen. Because then you have a right to complain about the stuff that you see that's wrong because you've been out there trying to fix it and you've been out there understanding that, you know what, the reason that these things are wrong is because these are really hard intractable intractable problems that a bunch of really smart people have given their lives to trying to figure out. And guess what? If they were easy to solve, they'd all be solved, right? And so I think once you get out there and you try to get your hands dirty and you try to get in the mud and realize, oh man, I see why it's a challenge of the border. I see why education is a problem. I see why teachers want to quit. I see why nurses, you know, are burned out. You'll appreciate the different people that you interact with on a daily basis throughout your throughout your life. Yep. Yeah. To be a part of a community means to serve the community. And it's yeah. uh it's uh yeah, it's there's no better way to put it. Yeah. It's uh, especially um, you know, people are so quick to to criticize. Um, yeah. but you know, if you're out there uh part of an organization or whatever your mission is, you know, you get to see other aspects. You know, especially if you're in something like the Navy, you're in, you're in one of our, our armed services, you get to go see these different places and there's no quicker way to get an appreciation of where you come from and, and how much of a light on the hill we are. Uh, for yeah. all our, all, we have faults, but for all our faults, there's no better place to be a citizen, a resident or citizen of than the United States. And yes, it's a great way to get an understanding of how important that is. Yeah, exactly that making the world a better place. So. But uh, Brian, I I appreciate you coming on and um, your uh, your socials and, and your website. Yeah, so our website is easy. It's andrews-wilson.com. And on there, we have a list of all our books and we'd encourage you to sign up for our newsletter. Uh, we don't spam. We only send one or two a quarter to sort of keep you updated on um, you know new releases and, and, and exciting news for the brand. Uh, our social is B. Andrews, J. Wilson on Twitter and Andrews. And Wilson on Instagram and Facebook. And John, thanks for the great interview. And I'm so happy you had me on the show. I'm glad you reached out. Thanks a lot, man. All right. All right.